every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, once again, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Look, the reasons why people are looking for alternative means of understanding the world around them should be pretty clear. There's a very concerted effort to lead people in a direction that is probably not of their own choosing. Yeah, I'm talking about uh, misdirection, I'm talking about misinformation, omission of information, anything to prevent you from making your own informed decisions or your own conclusions about uh, what is really happening in the world. I get it, it's confusing, and uh, trust me, I feel the weight of this too. Isn't it great to have alternatives though? Isn't it great to have an entire network that you can turn to? with voices that are dedicated to speaking the truth, to upholding the principles and the practices of liberty. Okay, just just pointing out that uh, a little gratitude goes a long way, and I'm only speaking for myself here, but very grateful that uh, there are platforms from which truth can still be spoken, because look around you, look at what's happening with social media, look at what's happening with the, the mainstream media. You notice how that uh, that availability of truthful, unspun commentary, it's its uh, shrinking. It's getting smaller and smaller. That means we've got our work cut out for us. If we want to understand the world as it is, we want to understand what we can do, then we're going to have to, uh, going to, have to do some heavy lifting. So put on, your, uh, put on your back brace or your lifting belt. <laughs> Use your legs, not your back, and away we go. Got a topic here to kind of start things off this time around with something that's going to, it's going to push some people into a very uncomfortable place. And I'm not doing this for the sake of, oh, good, ha, you know, somebody's uncomfortable. I must be doing my job here. It's more the recognition that, yeah, it's an uncomfortable place, but let's explore why that is. Paul Rosenberg, some years ago, this is about six years ago, wrote a commentary called Justice Without State. In other words, he's talking about how can you have justice if you don't have an official government laws and all of the apparatus called into existence. And this is something that I'm sure has crossed a lot of people's minds. But he says, you always know when you're venturing into interesting territory, because when you are, when you arouse defenses of, of uh, people say, well, well, we, we need that because, or you're an idiot or everybody knows, you know, you can't have, you can't have an existence without the state. So he says, these are the kinds of defenses that pop up anytime you touch on the concept of justice separate from the state. He says, it was, in my experience, something of a verboten subject, considered ridiculous and rude at the same time. 
He says, it was, again, in my personal experience, something that everybody just knew was impossible and which they also knew was dangerous. And yet, if you would press on them a little bit and ask them, why is that? They had no real reasons upholding their opinions. Certainly, they struggled to assemble reasons once I said, I don't think so. Humans are really good at that. But he says it was very clear that the decision was made first and the facts assembled second. So the idea of justice without state. Paul Rosenberg says, I was thrust into this subject quite a few years ago as cypherpunk projects ran into the reality that humans are unfinished creatures and sometimes end up in disputes with each other. Now he's talking about like cryptocurrency and um, encryption and protect, you know, ultimately having privacy in your electronic communications. Just so you understand what cypherpunk is talking about. Paul Rosenberg's been one of the people out there on the leading edge of this. He says, once cyberspace appeared, quite a few of us realized that it was kind of Terra Nova, the first new continent opening up since 1492 or 1606 for Australia. And he says, we wanted to do something good with it, something better than the territorial overlords were doing to humanity. So he goes, to give you a little bit of feel for that moment, here's a passage from J.P. Barlow's A Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. This was published back in 1996. So 25 years ago, J.P. Barlow wrote, Governments of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel. I come from cyberspace, the new home of mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty where we gather. End quote. So, with the separation imperative in mind, we were confronted with the fact that some kinds of some kind of law or justice service was necessary. And that's where Paul Rosenberg started digging into the subject. Now, before I go any further, can I just point out the, the reason I bring this up is because right now we are seeing in not just American society, but in first world societies uh, across the globe, we are seeing a crackdown and consolidation of power to government that's unprecedented. It's, it's you know, of course, it's done on the pretext of when we're just trying to protect you from this virus. But I think anybody who's got their eyes open can pretty readily recognize this stopped being about public health a long time ago. So with that in mind, here are some of the things that Paul Rosenberg found when he started looking into, is it possible to have justice without the state? And by the state, I mean organized violence to uh, to enforce, you know, what uh, what the consensus of the people in that geographic area want. That's kind of a clumsy definition, but hey, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best. So here are some instances he found. He talks about the Greek reset and the early Hebrews. At about 1200 BC, nearly every civilization in the eastern Mediterranean was plucked out by the roots. Now he says Egypt just barely survived. Then for some 400 years, government was all but absent and the cultures reset. This is commonly called the Dark Ages of the Greeks. Now, during this period, Greek law was non-existent. Justice was handled almost on a family level. And we haven't a great deal of written matter from the Greeks, but we do from the Hebrew, early Hebrew civilization, which thrived during this window of time. The early Hebrews, for some number of centuries, were a tribal anarchy, meaning no state at all. And aside from religious rules, their laws amounted to don't lie, steal, or kill, don't oppress the weak, 
Don't speak derogatorily of others. Don't take revenge and don't hold a grudge. And they were far more interested in justice than in law. For example, we find these passages in their earliest writings. Defend the poor. Let's try that again. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Justice, justice shalt thou pursue. So there's one example. Then there was the early medievals. He says, after the fall of Rome, Europe had its reset period, and during this time, many towns in Europe all developed and enforced their own justice. As historian R.H.C. Davis writes, even the law might change from village to village. A 13th century judge pointed out that in various counties, cities, boroughs, and, and townships of England, he always had to ask what was the local customary law and how it was employed before he could successfully try a case. Now, historian Chris Wickham explains what these people did and then provides a nice example from a French town. Wickham said the dispute, when disputes were dealt with, it was the villagers who reached judgment. They also acted as oath-swearers for the disputing parties as sureties to ensure that the losers accepted defeat. In one notable case of 858, in the plebs of Triel, a man named Anno had tried to kill Anoharian, a priest of the monastery of, monastery of Ridon, and had to give a vineyard to Ridon in compensations. As an alternative to losing his right hand here, six sureties were named, and they could kill him if he tried such a thing again. Most judgment finders and sureties were peasants. The villages around Ridon policed themselves. So do you understand what they're saying here? Even in a hard case of attempted murder, it was actually dealt with quite well by the locals of a Dark Ages town in rural France. And Paul Rosenberg says, look, there's absolutely no reason to believe that we couldn't do as well. Then there was the Veme. By about 900 AD, the people of Westphalia, now Germany, were operating in their own justice system, even though there were at least intermittently princes in the area who wouldn't like it. Running what they called Veem courts, they issued warnings to troublemakers, issued warrants, and occasionally had to execute someone. Now, the Veem did have secret trials, but only as necessary. Their meeting places were always known to the locals, and they never used torture, even though the princes did. The Veem was taken over by the state in 1180 A.D. Here's another example. Lex Mercatoria. The great medieval trade fairs had their own justice system called the Lex Mercatoria, or Law Merchant. Separate from state justice, it operated quite well over a long period of time. Eventually, however, the states took it over and more or less rolled it into their systems of law. And then there was Jewish self-rule. As historian Paul Johnson writes in A History of the Jews, quote, The Jews always ran their own schools, courts, hospitals, and social services. They appointed and paid for their own officials, rabbis, judges. Wherever they were, the Jews formed tiny states within states. And Paul Rosenberg points out, under less than hospitable conditions, Jewish self-rule, including the provision of justice, thrived from the fall of Rome until just the, last, the past few centuries. And now we have arbitration, more properly known as Alternative Dispute Resolution, or ADR, thriving as an alternative to state justice, which has become so expensive and cumbersome as to be impractical. Now, this is true for high-end commerce, for labor disagreements, and right down to the level of disputes among construction contractors. 
Alternative dispute resolution works very well and is far less expensive than government justice. And it's restricted only by governments who enforce specific limits. And last but not least, there is the Internet. Now, right now, there are quite a few Internet arbitration providers, and they stand in a fairly murky area, says Paul Rosenberg, but the states haven't clamped down on them yet. So he says, I haven't had any experience with them, but as far as I know, they provide good service. And compared to what? Well, he says, whenever something new comes along, like providing justice outside of state power, people instinctively look for flaws in it. And then finding even one, they leap to the conclusion, well, see, it won't work. But the truth is, of course, that the current systems of laws are full of flaws from end to end. They're corruptly applied, laws are bought and sold, they're insanely expensive, and they're unforgivably slow. And perhaps worse, they change with every new session of the legislature. So if we're to take perfection as a standard, state-provided justice fails, and fails very badly. So he says, having given you a quick overview of non-state justice, the question remains as to why modern people are so biased against the very concept. And he says, to answer that question, I'm going to leave you with a short passage from Carl Jung's The Undiscovered Self. Quote, in order to turn the individual into a function of the state, his dependence on anything beside the state must be taken from him. Sounds kind of descriptive of the times that we live in. And I bring this up simply because there is, there is a growing recognition that we are dealing with, with ideologies and worldviews that, uh, that simply cannot live side by side. And I'm going to oversimplify this a bit, so please forgive me. There's going to be a, a slight lack of nuance here. Generally, when you are speaking of people who love freedom, who understand their natural rights, who want to claim, use, and defend those rights, it's pretty straightforward. We just want to be left alone. I don't want to impose something on you. I'm not, uh, I'm not about telling you how to live your life. I'm not telling you, you have to wear a mask. You have to have the vaccine. You have to jump through these hoops, you know, to, to function in my society. And all I ask in return is leave me alone. You make the decisions that are best for you. I'll make the decisions that are best for me. Anything that is peaceful ought to be on the table. But it's very clear there, there's a strong contingent of people. Actually, let me put it this way. There's a tiny minority of people who are utterly control freaks. I can't think of a nice way to say it. There's no diplomatic way to put it. They have what uh, I think it was St. Augustine referred to as libido dominandi, um, lust to dominate other people. And unfortunately, this tiny minority of control freaks has garnered control over the levers of the state, as well as other institutions, especially corporate America and corporate, the corporate world, for that matter. And we see this pretty clearly in all the various, uh, you know, take the shot or get fired mandates that are coming our way. What are we supposed to do? It's clear that uh, they feel like they have a holy mission. They are like the Jacobins of the French Revolution. They are so certain that what is right, that, that, that they are right, that uh, they don't need to worry about how they go about accomplishing whatever they're trying to accomplish. Right and wrong, pff, they don't figure into anything. 
These guys are straight out of Machiavelli's playbook, playbook, and it's, does it work or doesn't it work? Does this make people do what I want? Good. Then that's what we're going to do. But there's no question of, you know, is it right or is it wrong? So what are we supposed to do? Those of us who want to be free, those of us who want to be left alone. Because it's very clear that those who control so many of the different institutions of our society, they're not going to leave us alone. I mean, I don't know. In in the next segment, we're going to talk about uh, something that's, well, it's it's a pretty unpleasant topic for anybody. But it's the prospect of like an actual shooting civil war. And Brandon Smith has a tremendous take on it. I'm focusing for the moment, though, on what can we do to build a, a structure, if you will, that doesn't look exactly like the government that we have now. I don't, we don't need a repeat of, you know, the mistakes that we've made, you know, up to this point. But I think it's great to build a parallel system. The best example I can think of in this case is homeschooling. You know, the, the public education establishment, and in full disclosure, my wife is a public school teacher. Um, she's really a good person. She's 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 not... She's not just a cog in the machine, but, um, you know, we've seen the system. We have had the chance to see the system from the outside as well as from the inside. And the public school system is largely becoming an indoctrination system, whether it's at the grade school level or whether it's, you know, at the collegiate level where it's more of an indoctrination sort of thing. And parents years ago who were saying, you know, I don't like what's happening not only is, is education compulsory, our states, you know, back 100 years ago, all in, adopted these compulsory education laws. You send your kids to school here or you go to jail. And I know there are those who would say, well, yeah, but, you know, it's not like the state would kill anybody over it. Oh, really? Yeah, there was a guy by the name of John Singer. I think it was back in 1978 in the state of Utah, which is a fairly freedom-minded state. John Singer kept his kids out of public school. And because of the state's compulsory education law, that brought law enforcement to the home of John Singer. And he refused to be arrested for having the gall to educate his own kids. A struggle with the police ensued. Singer was shot to death in his own driveway. So just, I'm just saying, that compulsory education law, however well-intended, is still backed by the fact that the state will kill you in order to enforce it. So don't take any law lightly. There's no law so small that you will not be killed by the state if you refuse to, to go along with what they're saying. I believe a guy selling Lucy cigarettes in uh, New York City learned this the hard way. Eric Garner was his name. Nonetheless, homeschooling emerged as a way to get out of that system to get the kids out of that system. Now, this doesn't mean that the parents were able to totally extricate themselves, right? They still, if they lived in a state with property taxes, chances are very good. They still had to pay that property tax, which still went to fund public education. So they kind of got socked twice. But at least it built a community, it built resources, and it placed the control back in the hands of these parents. And some states were very good about this. We've come a long way in the last 25 years. 25 years ago, I was friends with some parents who had moved to Idaho from, I think it was North Carolina. And the sole reason why they chose Idaho over North Carolina was because they wanted to homeschool their kids. And it was just getting too, too 
difficult. The state was absolutely insistent on, nope, you've got to jump through all these hoops, and they strongly discouraged homeschooling. Idaho, on the other hand, was pretty open to it. And and that door has opened wide open since. This is probably one of the greatest benefits of the last 20 months is with all the lockdowns and all the shutdowns and all the political posturing that's gone with COVID, a lot of parents have realized, you know what, I don't want to send my kid to school wearing a mask every day and being regimented and socially distanced and all this. So homeschooling is seeing a resurgence and a rebirth like never before. The online resources, just the community resources that a person has are quite considerable. And it hasn't done away with the state-run education system, which was a concern that some people had. Well, this is competition. And in fact, when when uh, when states would pass things like uh, like vouchers or when they would pass uh, education tax credits, which is probably a better way to go, in that it allows the parents to keep money in their pocket that they would have normally paid in taxes with a tuition tax credit. They just apply that money to their child's education. The money never leaves their pocket. But it's very telling that some public educators were like, well, that's taking money out of our pockets. Our money. Our money. And it's like, wow. I don't know how to describe this to you, but if a person earns money and it's still in their pocket and they spend it, albeit in a way that you would rather they didn't in homeschooling their kid, it never was your money in the first place, Mr. or Ms. Statist. I don't know where that entitlement attitude, well, actually, I do know where that comes from. It comes from that uh, lust to dominate and that lust to be in control. So with that as just one example, I think it's very possible to build those parallel institutions. And the idea of justice being one of those possible institutions, I think, uh, I think it could work. As Paul Rosenberg says, no, it's not going to be perfect, but look at the system that we have. You can't claim perfection. And if, you, if, you've ever, if you've ever talked to someone who's actually worked within the legal system, had a good friend who was a sheriff's deputy who spent quite a few years standing as a bailiff in the courtroom. I'll never forget this guy telling me one day over lunch, he just said, well... He says, I've, I've seen a few things in my years standing there in the courtroom, but he says, if I've learned anything, it's this. You get exactly as much justice as you can afford. Now, he's a fairly freedom-minded guy. He's also a realist. And I think when he said that, that's, that's when a light kind of popped on for me, and I went, oh, that really does seem to describe the way that, that our system is set up. I mean, look, there are, there are ways within the system, jury nullification and so forth. But I think we're coming to a point where it's, it's going to come to blows. And it's, it's not going to be those white supremacist, domestic extremist terrorists that, uh, you know, or domestic terrorist extremists that are, are going to be the ones forcing the issue. It's going to be the people who think they have to be in control of others. And should you see violence from people on the right, I can just about guarantee it's going to be of a defensive nature when they had no other alternative. 
I don't like to talk like this. I I hope you understand that you know this sensationalism has its place in entertainment, perhaps. But I don't know that sensationalism serves us as well when it comes to being informed. So in the next segment, we're going to dive headlong into a really difficult topic. And with the help of Brandon Smith, we're going to we're going to talk a little bit about uh, in a civil war. Would the authoritarian left be easily beaten? He says, yeah, he says he thinks that's probably going to be the case, but it wouldn't end there. So there are some considerations. War should always be a regrettable last resort. Right? It's not it's not the first resort. But we've got some tough decisions ahead of us. We'll tackle them just the other side of our break. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Do you know there's no other condition that I'm aware of where vitamins and supplements make such a big difference than COVID-19? We have a an abundance of data that we need to be replete with a variety of micronutrients, and that includes vitamins, minerals, and other substances our bodies need. I rely on Healthy Cell Super Boost. That's immune super boost. It's a, a gel pack that can be taken every day. I like to do it before I exercise and before I go out. It's a wonderful supplement. It gives me the immune super boost that I need. Go to HealthyCell.com. Use the promotional code OUTLOUD and get a discount on your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty. Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Please take the time to listen carefully. And when you hear the sponsors on this network, 
Take the time to consider whether you are in a position to do business with them, or at least let them know that their message has reached your ears. I hope we're not taking for granted how great it is to have alternative platforms such as this to to get information to better understand the world around us and what we can do. Now, I was warning in the last segment, I'm going to tackle a topic here that is going to make some people uncomfortable, including me. But I want to bear through the the discomfort here because I think this is a topic that uh, is, is a lot more relevant than I wish it were. You know, you hear talk every so often of civil war, and and I've got to point this out just because I want to make very clear. What is commonly referred to as the American Civil War from the 1860s was not a civil war. It was not two factions fighting over control of the same government, or two or more factions fighting over the same government. The war between the states, which is probably the most neutral description of what happened was the product of Lincoln's Union forcing southern states which had seceded from that Union back into the Union. I like how Alexander, not Alexander, um, Lysander Spooner put it. He says, uh, he he called it Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union. But it was not a civil war. And what we're seeing today would result in factions fighting over control of, you know, the the same government. Probably the best, most most modern example of this would be what we saw in the Balkans about twenty five or thirty years ago. Yeah, if you if you remember it, uh, that's it should send a shiver up your spine because that was some of the ugliest stuff that humanity has seen in in a great time. I mean, it's 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 some of the worst. I have a good friend who actually served in the U.S. Army and was sent over to uh, Bosnia just as part of a peacekeeping force. And, you know, he he actually saw combat while he was there. But I'll never forget him telling me the worst day of his life was the day that he and his unit were present as a mass grave was opened up. And authorities went about trying to identify who was buried in this mass grave. And his words where he said, yeah, that was pretty much the worst day ever. Can't even imagine it. So this is not something that that, uh, I take lightly. It's not something that anybody should be cheering on. You know, there's not going to be a soundtrack that makes it awesome. And, you know, there's a lot of ugliness that would come. But I think we need to be realistic. We are at a point right now where the divisions are deep enough and the the desire to, to go separate ways is probably going to be met with a desire, no, you can't. You have to do what I say. So we ought to get our minds around it. Here goes. Brandon Smith, in his article, In a civil war, the authoritarian left would be easily beaten, but it won't end there. He starts by saying there are a lot of assumptions and misconceptions when it comes to the notion of a second civil war within the U.S., And he says, what I see most often is the argument that the political left has already won the war without firing a shot and that a rebellion would be crushed under the heel of a newly awokened military industrial complex and a leftist controlled government. But he says the problem is this argument is extremely naive and ignores the bigger picture. Now, Brandon Smith says there are I think there are a couple of reasons why certain people press the leftist supremacy theory. First. 
They greatly fear the idea of a kinetic war breaking out and find the idea of combat repellent. And so they act as if a shooting war can, cannot ever be won. They hide their fear behind a veil of rationalism and thin hopes of a completely passive resistance. They figure that if they can't fight and win, then no one else could fight and win. Second, the motives of some of these people are more nefarious than fearful. He points out one of the primary functions of fourth-generation warfare is largely psychological. It's to convince a target population, hey, resistance is futile. If you can make them believe that winning is impossible, then they may not fight at all. Thus, the prophecy can be self-fulfilling. Now, luckily, this method of propaganda doesn't seem to be working on a large number of Americans. And that said, there are many layers to the scenario of civil war, and while the extreme cultism of leftists is relegated to a small percentage of the population, they are supported by almost every major institution in our nation. The federal government supports and protects them. Some state and local governments support and protect them. The mainstream media avidly sings their praises. Most corporations and big tech platforms support them and spread social justice doctrine along with them. And all globalist foundations support, organize, and even fund them. All the people that the political left used to consider evil are now on their side. And it gives their small cult unprecedented social power and a number of political weapons to use when they desire to threaten or harm people who disagree with them. For now, most of this power is actually used to terrify other people on the left. To keep them in line. And Brandon Smith says there are many moderate Democrats that have a distaste for the lunacy of social justice warriors. But they're so afraid of being labeled heretics, racists, fascists, etc. that they keep their mouths shut or support draconian policies because they think they have to in order to defend their political team. He says limp-wristed moderates and old-school Democrats that go along to get along are almost as big a problem as hardcore leftists because they don't have the guts to stand up to the bullies in their own political circles. He says this is how we end up with around half the country in support of vaccine passport mandates, a totalitarian agenda which would give government complete control over the health decisions of individual Americans, complete control over how businesses operate and who they're allowed to hire, not to mention complete control over the economic participation of the average citizen. Vaccine passports are the ultimate power in the hands of government to decide the life and death of individuals and families. And not surprisingly, the political left and Democrats are by far the biggest group backing the government and the globalists on this agenda. Now, Brandon Smith says this places our nation in a difficult position. The political left desperately wants to control the lives of others, while conservatives and some moderates just want to be left alone. We are at an impasse. We cannot share the same spaces, we cannot share the same government, and we may not even be able to share the same landmass. Our ideas are mutually exclusive. We believe in freedom and individual responsibility, and they simply do not. And he says, make no mistake, an outright conflict is coming in the U.S., and people in alternative media circles that fear it need to come to terms with that fear and accept the inevitability of war. See, this is the part where it gets uncomfortable, right? (laughs) Are you squirming like I am? All right, here we go. 
Brandon Smith says the sooner they do this, the sooner they can take action to mitigate the damage to themselves and communities. In fact, he says there will come a day very soon when you will have to defend your freedoms and the freedoms of future generations with your life. But his advice is to embrace the suck and move on. I'm going to pause here for just a second. Have you ever had this conversation inside yourself with your conscience? Have you ever explored that line in the sand that you will not allow to be crossed? I suspect there are probably more people today who could nod and say, yes, absolutely, I have. And it's not a decision to take lightly. But for people who've just been kind of sitting back, hoping it's all going to work itself out, I wish I had better news for you. But the truth of the matter is no one is coming to save you. What Brandon Smith is talking about here is probably more likely to happen than not. So if there was ever a time to get right with God, to know yourself and know what you stand for, this is that time. And by the way, it doesn't start with immediately, well, what am I willing to die for? You can start with little stuff. But eventually you are going to come to, are there things that I believe in strong enough that I would be willing to die for them? In fact, for some people, it's easier just to skip right to that point. Well, of course, these are the things for which I would die. On this hill I shall die. I will stand. And Look, I admire anybody who can come to that conclusion. But if you're saying that, at the same time that you're not even willing to suffer a little bit for your beliefs, to risk being called names, to risk losing your job, to risk losing friends, or risk losing standing, you know, in the face of your peers, you might be getting a little bit ahead of yourself. Because it's, it's not easy to be in the position of, of standing for something and, and, you know, actually having to suffer for it. Plenty of people say, of course, I would, I would die. I would die for my belief, you know. I think that the classic example of this is the, the Christian with a gun held to their head. You either deny that, you, that there's a God or I will kill you. And we all, you know, well, of course, I believe in Christ and I'm willing to die in order for that to happen. And, and you know, in their hearts, I think they really believe it. But when it comes to, uh, I'm going to resist taking advantage of this person so I can make money. Or I'm going to resist spending my time looking at pornography because, you know, it's a great way to pass the time and I find it interesting. If you can't stand up to those lesser challenges, you're probably going to have a change of heart when you find yourself with an actual gun to your head. I'm just saying. it. The consistency of character has to carry through to other areas of your life. And if you believe that there are things that are worth standing up for, um, it's got to start with, with the simple things in your life. And eventually you'll get to the places where, okay, this is where I would plant the flag, this is where I would die. That's a conversation everybody needs to have. And your conscience needs to be the guide for that conversation. It can't just be because, well, you know, Brian gave us a real stirring speech and got us all roused up, and now I'm ready to charge that hill. you got to know in your heart that you're doing the right thing. That's why he can't, that's why Brandon Smith, though, counsels, though. You know, you, 
if you have come to the conclusion that uh, there are some things that I would be willing to stand up and lay my life down to defend, okay, once that decision is made, once you've accepted it, how about this? Are you willing to be arrested? I actually had a friend ask me this a little over a year ago. Uh, One of the first big rallies, I'm not going to call it a protest, although there was some protesting taking place, but there was a big rally in Salt Lake City. This would have been probably June of 2020. A group called the Utah Business Revival was, was stepping up and speaking out on behalf of businesses being shut down. And this is when Salt Lake City was under, you know, uh, stay-at-home orders and mask orders. And everybody was told, you know, you cannot gather and you have to keep your gatherings under 15 people or whatever. And this friend reached out to me and said, hey, we're having a rally. Can you come? And I was like, yeah, hey, I would love to. And his next question was, are you willing to be arrested? And I went, ah, hang on a sec. Because that's one I'm going to have to talk over with my wife. Personally, I don't uh, I don't have a problem. I, I've known enough good people who have been handcuffed and taken off to jail, not because they were criminals, but because someone in power did not like what they were doing. So I think, you know, I've, I've reached the point where not everybody who goes to jail is a bad person. Not everybody who's arrested or ticketed is a bad person. Sometimes they're standing up for the right thing against a very corrupted system. But I told my friend, let me let me touch base with my wife real quick and make sure she understands. If I go to this rally, there's a there's a chance I may be calling her and saying, "Okay, honey, contact a bail bondsman because <laughs> I'm going to need some help getting out of jail." And I just needed her to understand that uh, this is this is what the stakes are. Fortunately, police were almost. In fact, I don't remember even seeing any police officers there. It was it was a pretty tame situation. But maybe that's a good place to start. Are you willing to be arrested? Okay. It's like, it's like Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, to stand for truth is nothing. For truth, you must sit in jail. I think he was on to something. All right, back to Brandon Smith's article. He says, in recent articles, I've outlined peaceful steps that can be taken by conservative states and counties to combat the establishment's tyrannical medical mandates, as well as critical race theory propaganda and other trespasses against free-thinking people. Now, he says these steps include offering sanctuary to people and businesses that are under attack by the federal government for noncompliance, as well as the the steps that states need to take to pursue soft secession. But he says breaking away from the political left and starting fresh is socially and economically possible. It's not as far-fetched as some people believe. But then again, authoritarians usually can't stand the idea of letting people just walk away and separate. They have a desperate need to micromanage and dominate everyone. And he says, I hold out very little hope that leftists or globalists will allow us to live in peace. They will try to force their ideology on us at the barrel of a gun. Now, when it comes down to the average leftists, he says, their movement's a paper tiger. In the event of civil war, the political left in the U.S. would easily be annihilated. There are some that argue otherwise, and these are the standard claims they usually make. Uh, Starting with a woke military, he says, now let's not get ahead of ourselves. The primary paranoia over confrontation with leftists is the new woke propaganda being spread by the Department of Defense in the form of military recruitment ads. Yes, we're talking purple-haired staff sergeant... uh, 
fluid gender, <laughs> you know, talking about what a great opportunity it is to be in the military. But Brandon Smith says, as he outlined in his article, there will never be a woke U.S. military. Here are the reasons why. Polling of military personnel shows about 30% identify as Republican and 40% identify as independent, with the majority of the independents being libertarians and constitutionalists. In other words, 70% of the U.S. military leans conservative in their principles. Now, the military brass going woke is meaningless if the majority of soldiers are not going to follow them into battle to oppress their own people. In fact, he says we're already seeing this in terms of the current uh, serving that are the current ones serving that are refusing to take the experimental COVID vaccines. Polling in the summer suggested at least 50 percent of the soldiers would refuse to take the mRNA vax. Now, the Department of Defense claims at least 70 percent of soldiers are now vaccinated, but that's unconfirmed and probably an exaggeration designed to manufacture a false consensus. He says we will soon know the real stats because the Biden administration is threatening dishonorable discharges for soldiers that refuse to comply. So the assertion here is that freedom-minded people leaving the service in droves would open the door to a fully woke military of the far left, and it presupposes that woke leftists actually want to join the military or that they're capable of meeting the bare minimum standards. Well, Brandon Smith says they are not. Over 75% of Americans ages 18 to 24 are ineligible for the U.S. military because of lack of education, obesity, physical problems, psychological problems, and criminal history. So this negates 24 million people from the 34 million in this age range for recruitment. And since 70% of the military is conservative slash libertarian, this means either more young conservatives are healthy enough to pass the recruitment phase or... Far more conservatives are interested in volunteering. It could be both factors combined. Now, sure, the DOD could drastically lower their recruitment standards, but then they would have a woke gaggle of weaklings as a fighting force, and that works in our favor. In any case, he says just because 30 to 50 percent of soldiers leave in the face of vaccine mandates, that doesn't mean the void will be filled by leftists. In fact, it's likely the void will not be filled at all, and the military will be left to stagnate as recruitment collapses. The pool of talent is already small, and the DOD just shrank their options by at least 30% more. So, to summarize, Brandon Smith says there will never be a woke U.S. military. The institution would collapse before it ever reached such a lofty goal. Biden's vaccine mandates are, in a way, highly beneficial for conservatives and freedom advocates because they are forcing the current ones serving off the fence. Soldiers will now need to consider what liberties they are willing to violate just to stay in the military. Because it's not going to stop with a couple of forced vaccinations. It's going to escalate. We may see a massive influx of discharged soldiers joining the liberty movement in the near future because of Biden's totalitarian behaviors. But let's say that Biden is hypothetically able to muster a combined force of alphabet agencies and portions of the military into an army of jackboots to suppress the population. What about all the technology and weaponry they would have at their disposal? Well, superior technology didn't help the military much in the war in Afghanistan. And American civilians have access to far superior training and equipment compared to the Taliban. Conventional armies are notoriously weak against asymmetric warfare tactics. In the end, wars are won by people and tactics, not weaponry. 
Now, conservatives also own the gun culture and firearms training. Brandon Smith says beyond the the military, the U.S. gun culture is dominated by civilian conservatives. Leftists are slowly beginning to realize that anti-gun is sabotaging their own agendas. Many started buying firearms in the last year and a half. But owning guns is not the same thing as knowing how to use them. It would take leftists many years, perhaps decades, to catch up to the pure knowledge base that conservatives have when it comes to firearms and tactical training. These things have been passed down through conservative families for generations. And again, most combat veterans are also conservative. Now, this is not to say that there are no leftists out there that are firearms that aren't firearms uh, uh, that are firearms proficient. Rather, I'm sure there are a few. But Brandon Smith says most of the time when leftists get together with guns, the results are either painfully embarrassing or dangerous. In fact, he has a link to a video from the uh, ang- from angry cops on the BLM inspired not effing around coalition. And this group not only ends up shooting each other, but their representatives don't even understand the basics of how their own rifles function when they argue the negligent discharge was the gun's fault. Let's not forget the good old John Brown Gun Club and their rock and recruitment videos that made us choke on our own tears of laughter just a few years ago. He says the leftists are shockingly inept when it comes to guns and combat skills. They are a minimal threat to conservatives if civil war is the issue. By the way, I largely agree with him, but at the same time, I would caution, don't underestimate your enemy. I've seen some of the people out there, you know, patrolling with Antifa as they're taking over city streets in Portland and intimidating people. And truth be told, some of these people look fairly squared away. They know they have the right equipment, and it looks like they have it set up as if they actually know how to use it. Don't underestimate them. Brandon Smith says you can't win if you're not willing to die for what you believe in. And this is an interesting point to consider. He says leftists are adamant about their ideologies and they're keenly interested in demanding other people die for the cause. But when they are forced to face personal risk to achieve their directives, they will usually run. You can see this in the mob confrontation with Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha. A horde of leftists were perfectly willing to chase him down with the intention of killing him. But when he turned to fight, and a few of them got shot, including Joseph Rosenbaum, a convicted pedophile, the mob's enthusiasm suddenly evaporated. Why did they run? Well, Brandon Smith says because their religious fervor for Marxism is an act. It's not real. Deep down, they don't even believe in what they're doing. This is what separates freedom fighters from all other armed forces. We accept the possibility of death and fight in the face of overwhelming odds because the goal of freedom is worth it. Most authoritarians and useful idiots, when faced with dying for their ideology, will abandon the cause. They have entered the fight with a built-in disadvantage. Now, from here he goes on to warn that the real fight will not be with average Marxist leftists. Brandon Smith points out half the states in the U.S. now have some form of anti-mandate laws or executive orders in place. Half the country is vehemently against vaccine passports. And he says if Biden continues on his current path, a soft secession of red states will begin and the mandates will be ignored. Now this will leave Biden with a handful of options. He will invariably seek to punish red states using economic pressure and cutting off federal funds. And when that doesn't work, 
he will have to put boots on the ground and use Orwellian methods to attack dissidents. Should civil war erupt, and he says, I'm positive that at this point that this is that it's unavoidable. Leftists will not last long. A majority of veterans and a large portion of the military are not going to fight against their own people. So they may even, and they may even step in to assist. A large number of police and sheriffs are also conservative and unlikely to intervene. So the question is, who is willing to die for the leftists and their cult? And his answer is, I suspect, not many. But the people behind the leftist movement, the globalist foundations that fund them, have a vested interest in eliminating conservative ideals and heritage. Globalist institutions working with the Biden administration will surely seek to intervene. They will call us white supremacists, even though many conservatives are black and brown. They will call us evil nationalists, even though there is nothing wrong with a national identity that values freedom. They will say we are insurrectionists, even though we will be acting in self-defense against an authoritarian regime. They will call us terrorists while using terrorist tactics and false flags against us. And they will claim that we are far too dangerous to be allowed to, to maintain our own nation or our own states. And their main rationale will probably fall to the U.S. nuclear arsenal. In other words, they'll claim a nation of terrorists cannot be allowed to possess nuclear weapons. And at the first sign that Biden or Kamala is losing control, there will be a call for U.N. intervention. Count on it. An international force would be organized to try to stop us from existing. And he says that's where the real fight would begin. The political left is a footnote. And he says, well, we should, re- we should continue to remain vigilant as they push their agenda. It's important to remember there are much bigger fish to fry. And we need to plan for the next dozen battles, not just the first. How we conduct ourselves from here on may determine whether or not freedom survives for many decades to come. Interesting. Well, I told you it was going to be kind of an unpleasant topic. And I hope you understand. Yeah, I wasn't kidding. It's, it's, it's a horrible thing to have to consider. But better to have, have thought these things through, worked out, you know, the plan of here's what I'm going to do. You don't have to know everything, you know, right? You know, a perfect plan isn't necessary, but you should have some kind of thinking about what would I do? How would I stand? What am I willing to give up in order to remain a free individual? None of this is particularly easy, but uh, I'm, I'm suggesting this to you because I believe that uh, you, and hopefully, I hope I'm also capable of making these kinds of decisions and, and, and making the right stand. Of this much I'm certain, inaction is not an option. Passive, well, you know, what can you do? I guess I'll vote smarter next time. I don't think it's going to fix it. You know, for me personally, I'll just lay my cards on the table. I will do everything in my power to peacefully live the way that I want to live. And that means, you know, right now I'm actively doing everything I can to shore up my position to where if I can't go grocery shopping, I'm still able to feed myself. If I need to address a bad cut or if I need to address some kind of illness, 
you know, maybe COVID, maybe not. Although I'm, I'm trying to cover as many bases as possible. I want to have the first aid training, the first aid supplies, and the knowledge to do so. Something that you would really be wise to consider doing is if you can find a doctor friend who will, will uh, teach you, learn how to do sutures. It's not going to make you into a surgeon, but um, learning suturing is is a very, very valuable skill. Suture kits are not that hard to come by. I think really, for most people, the, the best thing might be one of those uh, suture staplers <laughs> that can close a wound. I'm not saying that you can become your own ER, but there are a lot of things that, in terms of medical self-sufficiency you could probably take care of that, that we haven't. Well, we've got pretty powerful incentive to do so. I think most important of all, though, knowing who you can count on. Who are the people with whom you could trust your life? Who are the people who you could call at a moment's notice or you could simply stop by their home at a moment's notice and say, I need to leave some things with you? whether those be your banned books, your firearms, your kids, and no questions asked, they would say, I've got you covered. If you don't know such people in your life, maybe now's a good time to sort out who they are and who they aren't and to be the kind of reliable person who could be counted on in that situation. All right, keep your chin up. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network.